0: Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we're privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The purpose of At Home in Your Hymnal is uh, to help you be at home in your hymnal. How is that for clever marketing?
1: You, Yeah, you should go into advertising.
0: Yeah, I came up with that all by myself, too. Um uh, I don't know if I'm bragging or complaining there, but uh, we want people to be at home in their hymnal when they're in God's house during the divine service, to be comfortable, to be at home, to know what's in there, why it's in there, and the theology behind worship and specifically Lutheran worship, and also to encourage people to be at home in their hymnal in their home to use the hymnal for family devotions, for private devotions, to realize uh, many, many features that are in the hymnal, uh, various hymnals of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but specifically We're examining Lutheran service book here, the current hymnal of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We, for the last uh, many, many episodes, have been slowly and steadily working our way through the divine service. Uh, Much of what we've talked about fits with any of the Five divine services that are in Lutheran service book, any of the three divine services that are in the previous hymnal, Lutheran worship, or the one divine service, uh, page 15, that was in uh, the Lutheran hymnal. Much of what we're saying with regard to the theology and structure of worship fits for any Of those divine services, but we are looking specifically at the words and tunes of Divine Service One, Lutheran Service Book, page 151 and following. We have gotten to the point where we are at the Word, where the Word is spoken to us, read to us in the worship service. We have in... uh, The last episode, we looked at the Old Testament reading and the gradual. We looked at the structure of the readings in general. We did not talk in great detail about the one-year series of readings or the three-year series of readings because uh, Pastor Mirandi and I did that on a previous program, Check Out Our Archives, and uh, it was a really good program, and I think we handled that topic in a very fair way. We looked at the gospel reading and how the gospel reading kind of drives everything else for the day and how the gospel sets the stage for the theme of the day, the hymn of the day, all the sermon, all of these things that will be uh, coming here as we continue to talk. The one part of the readings that we skipped over and I wanted to save toward the end is the epistle reading. And Pastor, maybe you could just share a few words with regard to, and I'm I'm not talking about the introit right now or the gradual or the colic, some of the some of the quote unquote smaller parts of the liturgical structure. But how the Old Testament reading, the Epistle reading, and the Gospel reading fit together 99 times out of 100 on any given Sunday or feast day. How do they fit together, and what is the purpose or the function of each one of those?
1: Well, yeah, maybe two we should say. This uh, tradition of having these readings goes back a long time, Um All the way to the very early church, we had these sorts of uh, scripture readings. The Old Testament, uh, maybe not as much. It was a part of the... The preaching and teaching of the apostles, Um, but in the first lectionaries they had an epistle and a gospel lesson. And the gospel lesson brought you a specific teaching from Jesus, uh, and uh, the traditional one-year lectionary, the idea was the 52 most important uh, gospel teachings that Jesus taught or that are contained in the the four gospels were brought forward and given a specific place in the week. And then the epistle kind of gives a uh, theological example of what that looks like, or uh, um, a, um, practical application of what that scripture lesson taught in the gospel was and the old testament lesson then has a place where this same teaching then was taught in the olden days if you will in the time before christ in the time of uh, both the exodus and uh, the patriarchs and also then sometimes in the life of david uh, or the prophets and so we have those ideas here uh, a teaching of christ a practical example from the uh, uh apostles and the epistles, and then also uh, the same teaching being taught in the Old Testament to the patriarchs and the people of old.
0: Okay, so we have we have this basic structure, and while there's a rhythm and flow that goes with the entire liturgy from beginning to end, there is a rhythm and flow that's happening here with the individual readings that are going on for a particular day. the uh, The terms... Uh, propers and ordinaries might be helpful at this point in our discussion, Pastor. Um, These are not common, ordinary words that we use in the church, but they are very, very important descriptors of what goes on with regard to that rhythm and flow how do the how does the rhythm and flow with regard to the propers and ordinaries tie in to the readings on any given sunday
1: well first off maybe we should define those terms ordinaries are the part of the service that you ordinarily do no matter what. And so the invocation, we always do the invocation at the beginning of a service. And so it is called an ordinary. We always do a benediction. It's an ordinary. Uh, We always um, have the words of institution with the Lord's Supper. So that's an ordinary. The propers are the parts that change week in and week out. And so we have different scripture readings each week. So those are propers. We have a different collect of the day each week. So it's a proper. Uh, Propers are things that are proper to say on a particular week in the church here, and so that's why they're kind of called propers, or at least that's the way we can think about it. Um, and so we have the same divine service uh, as far as the ordinaries go each week, and yet to keep it fresh and exciting, if you uh, want to use modern language in that way, we also have different propers each week so that we can learn a different um, teaching or theology uh, from our Lord in his word each week. And that way we cover as much as possible of what God's word says. So the propers focus on specific aspects of theology and the ordinaries uh, are the service in which those propers fit in. Uh, And so that's kind of the way that um, those two words can be defined and used. Now, what was your question in regards to those again?
0: How does the readings... Mm -hmm. Uh, that are, as you just explained it, the readings that are different each week or each Sunday or each Feast day, how does that fit in with that over our overarching structure of things that are the same and things that are different? Why do we have – why are the readings propers and not ordinaries? Maybe that's a better way to explain it.
1: Right. The – Readings are proper, and maybe just from a purely practical point of view, it is not practical to read the whole scripture each week on a Sunday morning. Uh, Could we do it? Sure. It would take about two days, maybe, uh, to actually get it done in an orderly fashion. So we don't do that every Sunday morning. Uh, As long as church feels, it is not two days long. And so we take specific snippets of that scripture lesson, and we plug them into each week of the church year so that we can learn the different theology that's being taught by our Lord. Uh, And so that's the propers, and that's, that's different every week so that we can learn all those different things and not just be... Hearing what Poppy and Moline want you to hear, but rather we're hearing all the teachings that the Lord. Uh, teaches uh, by using all of the scripture uh, in an orderly fashion in the way the church always has by using a lectionary
0: okay Uh, so we're, we're talking big picture stuff here structure how the readings change each week it would be impractical to read all of the bible in a sunday morning worship service it would be foolish to read the same bible passage week after week just like you would get bored if you heard the same sermon Sunday after Sunday. So so there, there the uh the beauty, and maybe we can talk about this when we get to our next segment because I think this is a bigger discussion. One of the beauties of liturgical worship is the way that the ordinaries and the propers fit together. My old Adam wants something new, catchy, flashy all the time. And yet I need something that is rock solid and stable. And so to me, and you can ponder this when we go to our, our next break, Pastor, but uh, to me, that is one of the beauties with regard to why liturgical worship as opposed to what is sometimes called contemporary worship or revivalistic worship or enthusiastic worship or uh, Get it on, kind of worship, that kind of a thing.
1: Praise, worship.
0: Pray, yeah, praise, praise uh, you know, how all the different terms there. What I want what I want to conclude this segment here, we've talked about these general structure things. Now the epistle reading, as it fits in to this overall structure, we're going to have different readings every Sunday or every feast day. We're going to have an Old Testament, and a gospel. The gospel is going to drive the show. The Old Testament is going to support what the gospel is doing or be, be the prophecy that is fulfilled, something like that. The epistle is the uh, practical application or, you know, you, you used a, a couple of different things. We'll see this play out in the life of the church. The big difference between the one-year series of readings and the three-year series of readings The goal in the three-year series of readings is to get as much epistle readings before the people as possible, and they may or may not, generally they do not, tie in with the overarching theme of the day. In fact, there are huge chunks of the year where you have a Lectio Continua, where you just have a continuous reading from Ephesians or Galatians or Colossians, and they are completely separate from the other readings the epistle is where this comes out your experience with regard to the importance of the epistle as a practical reflection of the theme of the day
1: well yeah and here's something maybe to add on to what you just said because you're you're right in all those things the the truth is is that we can learn all the things we need to learn doctrinally and theologically from the Gospels. And it's handy then, the epistles are kind of the dogmatic book, if you will, in that regard. They take what Jesus teaches and they put it into doctrine that's easy for us to understand, which is helpful. Now, if we're going to use our our Bible that way, where Jesus teaches something in the Gospels and then the epistles dogmatically put it into words that are easy for us to understand, we would want our epistle lesson to match our gospel lesson, not to just be a continual reading of the epistles. It's good to do that, and it's a benefit for your faith. And yet, if we can see the bigger picture and how all these different teachings fit together and how the Old Testament, the gospel, and the epistle are all teaching the same thing, I think that's to a benefit for us.
0: Okay, and I and I think uh, you've probably figured out as you're hearing this program you've probably figured out why we use the one-year series here uh there there are the benefits uh to me outweigh the the negatives and for me the primary benefit is the epistle reading as a practical application sort of a third use of the law teaching with regard to the general overarching theme of the day. About 30 seconds, Pastor. And I'm going to speak
1: about my own sinful nature here. It is easier for me as a sinful person to focus on uh, 52 specific Scripture readings uh, to get those embedded into my heart and my mind rather than to uh, each week read a whole bunch of Scripture week in and week out that I probably won't remember.
0: Amen. Amen. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We need to take a short break. We'll be back. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're pastors at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. If you'd like to find out more about the divine service, about liturgy in general, and the historic Orthodox lutheran liturgy come check us out at good shepherd you can check us out on the radio you can check us out on the computer www.thecross957.org or if you dare come and check us out in person and the uh, the liturgy is nothing scary or anything like that it is a uh, wonderful god-pleasing way for the lord god himself to deliver his gifts his gifts of deliverance forgiveness life and salvation to the people. And for people that uh, grew up with a liturgical church and have somehow fallen away or drifted away, come back home. We are, in that respect, like your grandfather's church. And for people that only know about the liturgy in theory or uh, uh, some kind of a negative stereotype, come check it out for yourself. And I'm confident that in time you will fall in love with the structure and the order of the Divine Liturgy. We have been talking about the readings in the church, and we talked about uh, in, in our previous episode, this is episode 21, by the way, in our previous episode, episode 20, we talked about uh, the structure of the readings, we talked about the Old Testament gradual, we talked about the gospel reading, and all the fanfare that goes with the gospel. We discussed the epistle in uh, the previous segment now, and before we move on, Pastor, I want to I want to talk about that bumper music that I've been playing at the beginning and at the end of this episode 21. It is a quote from Joel, Chapter 2, that is set to music. And it is a specific response that is sung before the Gospel reading during the season of Lent. So I've got two things that I want you to reflect on. One is the seasonal nature of things that we do in the church. We, uh, we have a church year that is set to seasons and why this is a wonderful way to approach the Word of God or to have the Word of God approach us. Maybe that's the better way to say it. And then secondly, to talk specifically about the season of Lent and why we don't do the Alleluia's during Lent and why it is a more reflective time, but we're still praising God in the midst of that deeper reflection.
1: So I've thrown two big things at you there. Shoot. Well, um, the, the words there specifically for Lent kind of... Encompass what the season of Lent is about. It's about repenting of our sins, um, which is something we do year round, but especially in the season of Lent, we do so in preparation for meditating on what our Lord Jesus has done to forgive the sins we're repenting of, that He has gone to the cross. Bled and died and risen again um, so that we might be forgiven that we might have eternal life with him in his kingdom and so these words from um, Joel really emphasize what repentance is it is returning to the Lord that means we realize where we are in our lives the sinful things that we've done and uh, in faith then we also return to what God wishes for us to be and and so that's kind of the whole idea of Lent we repent we see where we are we change our minds Uh, if you will in faith and we return to to christ Um, and so there's the two sides of that coin there repentance is realizing sin and also believing the gospel which in fact then is the message that john the baptist preached and then also that our lord jesus christ preached uh it's good then to learn uh throughout the church year in different seasons because it allows us to have major emphases on different ideas uh and and periods of the life of christ we have the time where we can focus on all the teaching that christ did around his um, passion and suffering and death we have the season where we focus on christ's resurrection and uh, what that means Uh, we have the season where we focus on the the birth of christ we have the season where we focus on christ coming and that allows us to kind of um gather together the different doctrines and teachings of the church here into larger focuses so that we have an opportunity to study them more in depth uh, throughout a period of weeks instead of just uh, a random Advent theme here and a random Advent theme there. Uh, So that's, that's a great benefit to us in learning the faith because it allows us to build on one teaching to grow in depth in what they're trying to say. So we have... A rhythm in and
0: flow in the worship service, and I, I think that's a good descriptor. Uh, and I don't know if uh, I got that from Pastor Coolman, if I woke up one morning with that idea, if Pastor Murundi used that phrase or whatever, but wherever it came from, I think it's a good one. There is a uh, a rhythm and a flow. There's an up and down. There's there's uh, this structure, a divine structure. To this service, and yet this rhythm and flow is on a multifaceted level. We have a rhythm and flow with the individual parts of the worship service. We have a rhythm and flow that is going on specifically between the propers and the ordinaries. We have a rhythm and flow that is going on inside the propers only as we have the gospel reading, the Old Testament, the epistle, uh, the hymns that are selected, and we're going to get to that a little bit later in our program today, I hope. We'll see where we go here. We have an additional rhythm and flow with regard to the season of the church here. So we have all these different rhythm and flows that are happening. And whether you realize these rhythm and flows are happening or not, is really quite irrelevant. Right. God's word is working on you, whether you realize it is the 14th Sunday after Trinity or the third Sunday in Lent. You know, uh, God's word is working on you regardless. But these things can can help, can enhance, can give a little bit of flavor to how God is distributing His gifts and doing His doing. What do you think about this rhythm and flow on multi-levels and the importance of it in the life of the worshiping Christian?
1: I I think it is there, and I think that's the way that it always has been. Um, and even in the ancient church, you know, we got into this little conversation talking about the season of Lent, the season of Lent began as an opportunity for people to come into the church through adult confirmation. And actually, uh, in the ancient church, and when I'm saying that, I mean um, 300, 400 A.D. The early Christian the, the church. The early Christian church, when it was no longer under large-scale persecution uh, in the Roman Empire and as the empire collapsed, Um The season of Lent actually was when, if you were an adult who wanted to convert to Christianity, you took 40 days off from your life and you spent all day, every day, wearing sackcloth uh, and in church learning uh, basically a confirmation 24-7 for those 40 days of Lent. With the idea then at the end of that, at the Easter vigil, you would be baptized, you would be confirmed, you would come and receive your very first communion on Easter Sunday, Uh, you'd get to take off the sackcloth at your baptism and put on a white garment, uh, teaching you about um, Revelation 7 and the picture of those in heaven and even reminding you of your baptism. We still have that in our baptismal right today when we give them the white garment. Um, And and then be a part of the church uh, to enter in from the darkness of out. Outside the church uh, on Easter Vigil, into the church uh, where the lights would be lit and we'd be waiting for the resurrection of Christ. And that's a big part of the Easter Vigil service, as we've talked about on this show before. Uh, and so that season of the church year then reflected upon your life. And every Lent then, you remember what your cateches, catechesis was like and how you were brought into the church and how you left your old life behind. And, and this ebb and flow then didn't just inform forty days of your life, but it reminded you of leaving behind your old life and becoming a Christian. And I think some of that has been lost in our modern world, and maybe that's shameful on us uh, that we don't I, think I have about to stop things you that right way.
0: There, uh, some of this has been lost on our modern world. Ninety nine percent of it, Pastor, has been lost Uh, when when we have confirmation instruction, whether it be for young people, you know, junior confirmation or seniors. uh, And I'm just talking about adults there. What is the universal thing that we hear, whether it's from kids or from parents or from the adults themselves? How long is this going to take? There's other churches out there that go a lot faster than us. We know that we have some churches, some right here in our own community, that'll set aside a Sunday morning with coffee and goodies, or a Saturday morning with coffee and goodies, and have a two-hour quickie adult confirmation class, and uh, the whole thing has become a farce. And then we wonder why there is no true discipleship in the church. Sorry to cut you no. off, but this is uh this is a major problem in the church.
1: It, it is and, and I don't disagree with you. I'm trying to say it lightly what the what the truth is and I think it reflects yeah, then Sorry, in, that's not one of my gifts. So that's okay. When we don't take the catechesis or the confirmation seriously, uh I think we also then as a result, outflowing from that, uh we don't really take our faith seriously. I mean, how how important is it that Christ died and rose again for our sins? What impact does that really have on our life? If we really truly believe that it is life-changing, it ought to be life-changing, but we don't really think that way anymore. We take it for granted. It's no big deal. Everybody, Everybody's a Christian. Who cares? Uh, these things don't matter anymore, and that's really shameful uh, for the church, especially because the world is moving away from Christianity and becoming more and more secular. And so that divide between having been in the world and not being in the world anymore uh, in Christ is much sharper and, and more stark than it was before. But we still kind of neglect it and take it for granted.
0: Yeah, in, uh, in common thinking, the fallacy is everybody's a Christian and everybody's going to go to heaven when they die. And we know that according to God's word and according to what we see and experience, neither one of those things is true. Not everybody is a Christian, and not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, uh, will truly be in heaven on the last day.
1: To steal from Ronald Reagan and apply what he said about our... our democracy and republic and take it and apply it to the church. We're always one generation away from the church ceasing to exist. And unfortunately, lately, we haven't taken that as seriously as we ought to.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, one of the things that we do uh, in our catechesis is we encourage people to publicly confess the faith. The way that we publicly confess the faith in the divine service is in a creed. And when we come back from our break, we want to talk about the placement of the creed in the service. We want to talk about the importance of the creed in the service, and we want to talk a little bit about the three options that we have for an ecumenical creed in the worship service. This is at home in your hymnal. We'll be back after a short break. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to At Home and Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we're looking at the rhythm and flow, the structure of the divine service. We are through the readings in the divine service, and we normally would be talking about the hymn of the day at this point in time. But we have a little bit of, I don't want to say a glitch, but we have an option here here with regard to what comes next and it ties in very very beautifully with what you were uh, expounding on in the previous segment pastor we talk about the importance of catechesis in the life of a Christian. We talk about the importance of making the good confession in the life of a Christian. And here in the divine service, as a part of the rhythm and flow, we have an opportunity to confess before God, before our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are worshiping with, and before the whole world, what we believe. And what I'm talking about here is the confession of faith. This is not to be confused with the confession of sin from the very early part of our service and the preparatory part, but the confession of faith. Now, we're going we're gonna to take it up here uh, with regard to this confession of faith. This is an option, and it can be before or after the sermon. It can be before or after the hymn of the day, all that kind of stuff. And so we're going to look at
1: the creed in the divine service at this point in time. Pastor. Yeah, and just to build on something you said a second ago, not to be confused with confession of sins or anything like that, really the same thing is happening in all of them because the word confession means to say the same thing as someone else in this in this case in church we're saying the same thing god says so when we confess our sins we're saying that we're sinners because that's what god's word teaches us when we're confessing the faith uh, like we're about to talk with with the creed we're saying the same things that god teaches us in his scriptures about who he is and even when we uh confess praise and honor and glory to god we're saying the same things the scriptures say about who god is and how we ought to react to him and so while it's not the same thing Exactly. The word confession implies the same thing in all of these instances. We are saying the same thing God teaches about himself uh, in our divine service.
0: And that's what a confession is. It is same saying. Mm -hmm. And whether we are same saying the result of the law, which is that I'm a sinner, or we are same saying the truth of the scripture, saying this is what I actually believe, this is what the Bible says, that that word confession is appropriate. Here we have not the confession of sin, but the same saying of what Scripture is teaching, a confession of faith. I really believe this stuff. And so I want to talk, uh, first of all, about the creed and how it fits into this rhythm and flow of the worship service, and then the three options that we have for a creed. Now, generally... When we have a true divine service, when we have the Lord's Supper, we have the Nicene Creed. When we have what is sometimes referred to as a half mass or a dry mass, we confess the Apostles' Creed quite often. And... At least one Sunday out of the year, the church is uh, encouraged to confess the longer creed, the Athanasian creed. We do that on Trinity Sunday, and we've had other programs, especially with Pastor Kuhlman and our Nebraska Table Talks, encouraging us to consider the Athanasian creed more often because of the nature of that creed. I want to read a little bit from uh, Pastor Fromm's uh, Bible study on the Divine Liturgy with regard to the creed in the divine service, and I want you to react. Is that uh, that okay with you, Pastor? I can do that. Okay. From page 68 in his uh, wonderful study, Historically, the Nicene Creed is the one associated with the liturgy of the mass or the divine service. The Apostles' Creed was chiefly used for instruction, especially as it is derived from the questions and answers in the baptismal liturgy. The use of the Apostles' Creed with page 5 in TLH, the Lutheran Hymnal, 1941, is an exception in the grand sweep of liturgical history. Page 5 is the divine service of Holy Communion, with Holy Communion snipped off as such. It is a halfway house. Matins is the true morning service without Holy Communion, but was never meant to be the main service of the church for Sunday morning. It simply was a prayer office. As a confession against error, an expression of unity for the faithful church, the original wording of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, and I'm not sure I pronounced all that right, from the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381, was, we believe. And the Apostles' Creed, since it was the baptismal creed, was worded, I believe. Therefore, for the celebration of the divine service in the fellowship of the congregation, the Nicene Creed is the natural one to be used, especially since this is the gathering for word and sacrament. Your thoughts on Pastor Fromm's teaching, instruction, and observations there, Pastor?
1: Yeah, Um I think uh, a lot of the things he says are very helpful for us to understand. First off, uh, we ended with that discussion about we believe and I believe. Uh, I think that's important because we as a church are the ones who are confessing this thing together. Uh, And that has implications for closed communion and the way we practice our Um, Lord's Supper uh, each week in our divine service. And so when we say we believe, I think that helps clarify some of those things. And so in that regard, when we confess the Nicene Creed and we've changed it a little bit, uh, that kind of hurts that idea. Uh, Also, it's helpful to understand what the word creed means. It is from the Latin, uh, and all it means is I believe. And so the first words of the Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, in the Latin would be credo. Um, Deus uh, pater, I don't know, you know, or whatever it is. And so that's all that word means. And in the, the Greek, we used to say pistuomen or pistuo, which means I believe. And so uh, this is just a simple word that means I believe. And that's why we call it what it is. Um, and I, I think too, it's Helpful to think about the Apostles' Creed as kind of the baptismal creed uh, and and that we have that connected. And that's also then what we teach in confirmation when that um, baptismal faith is actually taught in detail to the person who's been a baptized member of the church. Uh, and then the Nicene Creed is the one we go in a little bit more depth and we do that in preparation for receiving the Lord's Supper. So we might examine our faith uh, as St. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 11 before we go and partake of the Lord's Supper.
0: And there is a theological reason why the church has for centuries confessed the Nicene Creed rather than the Apostles' Creed before the reception of the Lord's Supper. And that is, I mean, the Nicene Creed is about twice as long as the Apostles' Creed. It is an expanded section in that second article of the creed. It's also a little bit more expanded in the third article, but it is expanded in the second article of the creed because of the errors that were happening in the church at that time and can creep into the church at at any time, and are still with us today. Let me uh, read a paragraph again from Pastor Fromm's uh, study. The inclusion of the creed in the liturgy took place for the purpose of guarding against errors on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the two natures of Christ. The continuing confession of the creed serves to teach and remind the congregation that of the right biblical understanding on these matters and to identify the congregation as one which holds to this truth. The creed is spoken after the readings of the Holy Scripture to give voice to the church, to confess what she has received and believed from the Word of God. Whether it become, whether it comes before or after the sermon is of no import.
1: I think there's something important there in that regard, too. We made the observation just a few minutes ago that we cannot read the whole Scripture in one service. And so isn't it interesting, then, that even though we can't read all of it in detail, uh, from even just Matthew to Revelation, uh, each week in the divine service, we still then confess what the entirety of Scripture says in the words of the Creed, because where does all the stuff from the Creed come it is essentially God's saying word. this is what God's Word teaches the us. The Bible. The Bible. And so since it comes from the Bible, uh, we are still confessing the whole Scripture even though we don't hear the whole Scripture each week. And that uh, then is incumbent upon you as a hearer of the, the creed and and confessor of the creed to know what it is that you're saying. And the way that happens is you need to study God's Word on your own as well outside of church. And And just then to emphasize again, The creed is the Bible. For example, we have example. He talked about how the creed came into usage in the the divine service, Um, even in the time of Paul. There already were creeds beginning to be formed. We have, for example, Philippians 2, uh, verse 6, who, this is talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. What is that, if not a creed, at least uh, the beginnings of a creed uh, already in the time of St. Paul also? So we this isn't something that's been added in. This is something that we've clarified that has been there from the very beginning.
0: And one of the beautiful things about those words that you just read, that, that early Christian creed from Paul in Philippians, is it... Addresses the very things that Pastor Fromm said are constantly under attack in the church. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, in other words, the relationship of Jesus to the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, three persons in one God, and the two natures of Christ, beautifully confessed in those words from Philippians chapter two. Pastor Fromm says, um, uh, where the creed is to guard against errors, especially on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the two natures of Christ. This is why we confess a creed and why we don't make up the words on our own. We confess an ecumenical creed or one of the three creeds that the church has always confessed the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian. And. Um we are uh, we're getting close to a break here and I want to ask a question as we lead into the break as kind of a teaser for our folks when we uh when we're on break. And here's my question for you pastor. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Why is it important that the church's universal creeds be used rather than a self-written confession of faith? or a personal statement of belief. We talked earlier about uh, a more contemporary worship service, a praise kind of a worship service. Oftentimes, one of the hallmarks or trademarks of these kind of services is the pastor writes his own contemporary creed. What's the problem with this, or is there a problem with this? Ponder that while we go into our break. This is at home in our hymnal... We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each episode of At Home in Your Hymnal, and this is episode 21, we're looking at the rhythm and flow and structures in Divine Service Setting 1. Every episode is to help you be more at home in your hymnal, whether that's in worship, divine service in the church, family, or individual devotions at home, teaching the faith, God bringing his gifts of deliverance, life, and salvation to you, earned by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've been looking at the readings of the church, uh, the last uh, episode 20 and now episode 21, and following the readings or following the sermon comes the creed a confession of faith, and generally in our divine service, we confess the Nicene Creed when we're having a true divine service with the Lord's Supper. Occasionally, we'll have the Apostles' Creed, especially if we have a baptism that day, Um, and for the sake of time, we generally don't do both, although there would be nothing wrong with doing both. At least once a year, and hopefully more often than that, we do the Athanasian Creed. These three ecumenical creeds are the traditional creeds of the Christian church. And to say it another way, if you deny any one of the three ecumenical creeds, you're not a Christian. Now that's a, a pretty bold statement, but uh, I believe it's an accurate statement based on the history of the church. So Pastor, before we get into that teaser question that I left you with, I, wanna, I want you to talk a little bit about the three ecumenical creeds and how these three ecumenical creeds have uh, become basically the litmus test of orthodoxy in the Christian church.
1: Well, it has to do with the early church formulating doctrine into official doctrinal positions. It's not that these are new doctrinal positions, but... Uh, because uh, of the persecution coming to an end of the ancient church and the ability to actually talk about our theology openly for the first time, uh, there was a need in uh, about 325 to start with um, and going on for the next several hundred years uh, to actually formulate our doctrine into easy, confess, um, uniform Theology. And so there were church ecumenical councils, uh, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, uh, and uh, several additional ones as well, where they actually sat down and they addressed the errors that were being proclaimed. And this was places where paganism was still influencing uh, Christian teaching or maybe even. Greek philosophy was influencing Christian theology. And in the face of this, they needed to get together and say, no, here's actually what the Scripture said. And so they got together, uh, hundreds of uh, pastors from across the entire um, Christian world, and they sat down and they said, what is it that Scripture teaches? And they, that's how these creeds then came into existence, addressing these errors and she, teaching how they were wrong. Uh, and so that's the origin of the creeds. And so we have the origin of the creeds, and
0: it has been a, a staple, a hallmark of Christian worship uh, since the earliest days to make a public confession of faith. Same saying back to God, what God's Word says to us. And so whether it's the Apostles' Creed, which is generally considered the baptismal creed, whether it is the Nicene Creed, which is generally considered the Lord's Supper creed, or the Athanasian Creed, which is generally considered the Trinity creed, one of those three creeds is confessed in the worship service of the church, Uh, There have been times in the church when the creeds are sung instead of spoken, but we're not going to get into that right now. The question that I left you with was, why is it important that the church's universal creeds, ecumenical creeds, be used, Athanasian, Apostles, Nicene, rather than a self-written confession of faith or a personal statement of belief? Why... One, as opposed to the other, that's my question.
1: There's lots of ways that we could take this. Uh, maybe to start with, to talk about the creeds that we use and the fact that they belong to the church and have been confessed unif- uniformly by the church uh, for. Let's just let to be on the pessimistic side for 1,500 years. Okay, when that- you
0: say that the creeds belong to the church. Uh, expound on that comment before you before you follow up. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt but um some of our hearers might be wondering, oh sure the creed
1: belongs to the church. What what's this? Well, um what I mean is is that the creed is something the church has, not the individual person. Um, it's not that each Christian has their own different creed that they can confess and believe, but rather, to be a Christian, you are saying, my beliefs match with what the Christian church has always taught uh, in all times and in all places. And we call that uh, Catholic Christianity, lowercase c, yeah, small universal. C universal. So, um,
0: so it's not one person making the confession, but many, many people, and in right. some cases over many, many years, that have formed and shaped this confession. Is exactly. that right?
1: Exactly. So when I'm confessing the Apostles' Creed, uh, I'm saying the same thing that uh, we just had here recently, Irenaeus of uh, Leon Day, uh, I'm saying the same thing Polycarp said. I'm saying the same thing that... Uh, um, St. Augustine said, I'm saying the same thing that really Thomas Aquinas said in the Creed, at least as far as that. And where teaching has gone beyond that, maybe we have some differences, but we're all united in the lowercase Catholic Church in the fact that we confess this truth uh, about what we believe, teach, and confess about the Trinity and about Jesus. And so it's not mine to change and to edit. It belongs to the church. And the fact that it uh, has been made mine through my confessing of it means that I'm a part of the church. Uh, and where I fail to confess it or change my confession of that, I really am no longer a part of the church um, and so the other part of it, I would say, is that if I am changing the creed and saying it differently, I don't have all of a sudden 1,500 years of of Christians uh, in agreement with me. I don't have their approval. I don't have their oversight. Uh, not that uh, that oversight in itself, the tradition of the church, is the norm of the church, but who's the person that's making sure the thing I'm saying matches with what Scripture says? If I change it and rewrite it and edit it every week to kind of keep it fresh for my uh, members of church, who's the person making sure that I'm not accidentally drifting or falling into an error? There's not anybody that's doing that, and that's dangerous. And so it's beneficial to stay with the way the creed has been handed down to us so that we aren't drifting or sliding or falling into some sort of error without even knowing it and that's usually the way error enters right a little change over a long time ends up in a big distance uh, away from the truth
0: yeah the whole f- the whole uh, frog in the uh, hot water Uh, scenario comes to play there well you you said uh, a couple of things there that i want to uh i want to flesh out and uh, we're going to spend this entire segment talking about uh, this this nature of uh, a formal creed as opposed to one that you make up yourself or speak from the heart, that kind of a thing. The uh, second thing that you said there was to insure us against uh, false teaching and to keep false teaching from slowly but gradually slipping into the church. The Lutheran confessions have ten confessional documents, and we most often focus on the large catechism and the small catechism and the Augsburg Confession and we don't focus on the fact that the first three confessional documents in the Book of Concord are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So we are saying, along with the universal Christian church, the, the uh, uh holy christian church or if you want to use that small c the holy catholic church we are saying that this is what we believe teach and confess and to stray or to vary from that is a dangerous thing Mm -hmm. is a dangerous thing so i think uh lutherans have seen this from day one and this was also a way to show our roman catholic brothers and sisters that we were not trying to create some new faith that we truly desire to be a part of the
1: historic apostolic faith. Oh, to say that we actually are the real Catholic Church and that they were the ones who had drifted away from it, in fact.
0: I was, uh, I was trying to be very diplomatic with that, so uh, thanks for clarifying. Thanks for clarifying that statement. The, uh, the other part of this is the corporate nature of a creed. And I think this is a problem in the United States specifically because we believe in rugged individualism. And part of what makes our country great is the fact that you can be pretty much anything you want to be in the United States of America. If you put your mind to it, if you work hard at it, if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, all those kind of pictures and images that are there. So with this rugged individualism, it is sometimes hard for American Christians to look at a corporate nature of the church. And a creed is to say, it's more than me and Jesus. It is me and all kinds of other people, both living and dead, that have confessed the faith, the same faith coming from Scripture, and this corporate nature of the church is important. Pastor, first of all, quickly, would you agree with
1: that assessment? I would, and I'd say it this way. We are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, and the truth is many of them were much brighter than we are. And when we change that just to try and be fresh or uh, whatnot, I I know we don't have time to really get into this, but oftentimes it just comes across as cheesy in my my mind.
0: It does. It does come across as cheesy. And uh, we want to avoid that cheesiness, that me and Jesus, or Jesus as my boyfriend kind of thing. Last thing that I want to ask you. This is very real. How can we, aside from being faithful to God's word and using a corporate liturgy, how can we be a leader in helping people see and appreciate the corporate nature of church?
1: Well, I think first off, the the way to do it is to be in the word and study the word and understand the way that the church is talked about in the word. I think also we ought to repent of... Uh, what our desires want church to be, and actually, we need to listen to what God wants church to be and says that church actually is. Um, and once we understand, how do I say, it? God doesn't care what we want church to be, God cares what church is according to His Word, and that's what we need to repent and understand and try and f- match our practice to reflect
0: and i think that is well said and i think that's a great way to bring things to a close this is at home in your hymnal episode 21 when we come back next episode episode 22 we're going to be looking at the hymn of the day how that fits into the rhythm and flow the corporate nature of church and with regard to our rugged individualism in the church god's call is to return to the lord confess our sin and cling to his word of life. Until next time, God's richest blessings in Christ.